If you're serious about betting, this is the podcast for you. Brought to you by Pinnacle.com, the Serious About Betting podcast features me, your host, Ben Cronin, and some of the biggest names and brightest minds in the world of betting. Hello and welcome to Serious About Betting on the Pinnacle podcast. Today I'm joined by someone with quite the CV. He's a professor of applied mathematics and his expertise have taken him into many different industries. One of those industries will be of particular interest to our audience today because it is betting. Uh, He's spent a fair amount of time researching odds, markets, but he's also put his skills to good use and actually made money from betting, which is, as as a lot of people will know, quite a challenging thing. Uh, welcome to Serious About Betting, David Sumter. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. No, and thank you for coming on. Um, as I alluded to in the intro, there you've you've done some extensive and, and impressive work in your career today. Obviously, the, a, a lot of what we're going to talk about today is betting focused, but I know there's there's plenty of other stuff out there that you've been involved in. So, before we get over the or get into the betting stuff, can we maybe? Do a little bit of a, an introduction into yourself, so if you can maybe sort of tell our listeners who you are and your your kind of area of expertise and, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so just now and for some time I've been a professor of applied mathematics at Uppsala University in Sweden, but I've always been a kind of strange type of mathematician who just loves to see where you can apply mathematics, all the different ways you can use it. So. I, I started during my during my PhD, I was modeling how honeybees interact with each other and how they collect food. And then I went through a whole list of different animals, which I created models of fish schools, bird flocks, trails. Even we did this experiment with prawns in a bucket one time. So how prawns move in a bucket. And from, <laughs> from there, I, from there, I went on to, went on to um, modeling football. And that was when I wrote the book Socomatics. And really, really, that was the football was a sort of way into explaining my mathematical way of thinking. And and but and it became very serious. Actually, I started I started working for um, working with various football clubs. And I now work in a project together with Hammarby Football Club in Sweden and various other football clubs that I have research projects together with. And also the betting. And that that actually also came about from. From writing Socomatics, I wanted to set up a model to um, to see if it was possible for a mathematician to make some money. So I'm kind of a, a jack of all trades, applied mathematician, you could say. Well, the, and then I'm guessing there must sort of been a from an early age a, a fascination with numbers and things like that to sort of for you to pursue the career that you did. So was it was it very young that you were maths and, and numbers driven? Was there other sort of areas of expertise that you could have gone into, or what was kind of the setup there in your youth? Yeah, I, I would say I was one of these. I was one of these like home computer geeky p- people. So I, I had a Dragon Thirty Two that I got when I was maybe nine years old, and since the only way you could program that computer was, or the only way you could play games on it was to write in the games yourself, type them in from the magazine. That's what I did, and I learned to program at a very very early age. I could program when I was nine or ten, and I but. What I, I the maths came a bit later, so it was when I I wasn't like that good at maths at school. I was reasonable. I was good enough to get into university. I got a B in my higher maths, so I was like by no way some sort of maths genius. But when I got to university, I found and I was studying computer science. I found that maths was the thing that un, was the sort of underlying thing 
beneath computer science and how computers worked. And so then I really got into the mathematical um, side of things. But I always, I always kind of try and emphasize this, that, um, I mean, I do have some genius mathematicians in my department, but I'm not one of those people. And you don't sort of have to be a maths genius from a very young age in order to to do the sorts of things that I do. Well, yeah, and I guess it's the kind of the area you're into and it's finding those things that maths is connected to and how it's related to these certain fields. And is it, am I right in kind of thinking that's really the the kind of motivation or the, the passion for you is finding the, whether it's prawns in a bucket, whether it's uh, mm. how goals are scored in football or whatever it might be, is that is it really the connection between the two that is the, the fascinating thing for you? Exactly. And that's the that's the weird thing. I've been talking about this a lot recently. And, and this idea that I find prawns in a bucket just as fascinating as I do watching Liverpool Man United or something. I mean, it's, it's a kind of scary thought. But that but that's that for me, that's it. It's about how you understand these systems, how you can write down a simple set of equations or a computer simulation model that gives you a deeper understanding of those systems. That's the real challenge. And that's how we worked in, in our research group. Uh, we, we just sort of take in a problem that the biologists give to us or a sociologist give to us. I've also worked a lot with psychology and, um, for example, I've looked at segregation in society and things like that. So we get those, those problems come in and then we think, well, how can we actually construct a mathematical model to understand them? And I was thinking, I mean, you asked about like, you know, my when I was younger, I mean, even going back to my childhood, I, I remember when we used to go on summer holiday, what I'd do is I'd write down the last letter on every car that we went past, like it's last car on its registration number. And then I'd make a histogram of it and I'd try and work out what was the most popular year and, and how old different cars were. And I was sort of fascinated by that. So so I think I think that's where it all comes from. It's that kind of sort of fascination with finding patterns. It sounds like the writing was on the wall from a, a very young age. Um, one of the one of the questions I tend to ask our guests very early on, and we've we've touched upon it already, in the fact that I mean, obviously you're on the on this podcast, you've done some work in the field of betting, but it's it's kind of digging into where where betting became involved in these people's career. Now, often you get um, people that were were fans, and it developed from there. You get people, I mean, we've we've had sort of actuaries on and and stuff like that that are more into the. The, the nature of uncertainty and things like that. Now with you, is it, I know from, from reading your, your Socomatics book that you were, you've always been a football fan, but was it the, was it kind of the, the maths involved, the probability, the, the predictive elements, was it the fan element? Was it a combination of the two? Like how did, where was the very starting point for the, the relation to betting and math and what you do and, and that side of things? Yeah, I think it, it came from a kind of leaving no stone unturned when I started, you know, I was always a sort of a bit of a football fan, interested in the game, enjoyed it at a kind of amateur level. I coached my son's team and so on. And so when I wrote Soccermatics, I wanted to understand every aspect of football um, from what happens on the pitch to um, what happens in the stands, managerial decisions. And then it became very clear that betting was a big part of that. And so I just sat down and tried to learn the whole thing from scratch. I downloaded odds, um, started to look for patterns, started to look for possibilities of winning. And in Socomatics, I, I tried out three or four different strategies. I looked at, for example, the ELO ranking um, system, which lost a lot of money. I looked at an expected goals model, which just sort of about, about broke even. I looked at like, 
uh, picks by um, uh, by professionals and so on, which certainly didn't make any money. And um, then I also looked at one which was just a very simple model that looked for biases in the odds to see if maybe something was undervalued or overvalued historically. And that was the one that turned out to be profitable if used in the, in the right way. So it was really just a kind of idea of it, it came from just this wanting to know everything I could about football from a mathematical point of view. And I've, I've got to ask, I'm not sure on the, the soccer fields of Sweden, there's that many youth football team coaches that are professors <laughs> that have written books about soccer. So, so how does that go down? Do you, do you have your sort of dad hat on and, and coach like that? Or do you, do you coach with the math in mind? Um, there's a little bit of both. I mean, now, now I've actually, now I've handed over responsibility. So my son's 15. So he's, he's playing for a team with a, a proper coach. <laughs> but, um, but certainly when I was, when I was coaching them, uh, there was a bit of that. There was like passing networks, for example, you know, there's always a, there's always a sort of thing in kids football to maybe focus on the best player, the one that scores the most goals. So what I do is I actually write down passing networks as they played, like who passed to who. And then I give a reward to the two players who passed each other the most. I talk to them about like things like shot angles. So this is really the basis of expected goals. I'd say, you know, this is a good angle to shoot from. This is a poorer angle to shoot from. And we go out we have a few times we went out and did experiments where they try and score from different angles relative to the goal time after time and time again. So they got a feeling for it. So yeah, there was, um, unfortunately, I did subject them to a few few mathematical ideas, but there were never any objections. Well, and there was a thing when I put GPS vests on them all and tried to <laughs> <laughs> try to record their position. We didn't get that good information out of it, to be honest. Um, I can just imagine the heat maps now. But I mean, but the thing is that they have, um, one thing that they very much appreciate is that because of what I do, a couple of people have been out to Uppsala to visit um, to visit me and talk about the thing. So they've got to meet um, a couple of Premier League technical directors. Actually, have come out and watched them train. One of them even played with them. So uh, they, they've appreciated it a lot. Right. Well, let's. Um, we, we've kind of mentioned a couple of times the the stuff that you did initially in in Soccermatics, and I think that's I think that's where our paths kind of first crossed. I, I think I read the book and reviewed it and. We then got got in contact off the back of that, and I mean, for for anyone that hasn't read it, you've got to go out and do it. It's, it's uh, I can't remember; it's got to be a couple of years old now, but I, I really enjoyed it. It's a it's a great kind of crossover for someone who who loves soccer but is also interested in really how math is is involved and and how the two are connected. And it really does, outside of the betting stuff, it really does sort of enhance your understanding of the sport, which I think is, I mean, it's a credit to you and a credit to the book. Um, but what I'd like to do maybe is I think you mentioned there the the kind of testing you did with betting and stuff like that and that part specifically of the book. Now it was um I think it was around the betting market struggling to to price draws correctly. Um and I think you even wrote a you did a two part article for Pinnacle actually after we got in contact called I can't remember if it was something around sort of the the magic formula for betting or or something like that. So can you maybe Talk to us a little bit about that sort of stuff you did in in terms of betting. What was the experience like? What were you doing, and and how did it work? Yeah, I, I don't know how technical you wanted me to go into this, but um, uh, what I did is I basically downloaded the odds, and then for the I, I focused on the Premier League because I was writing the book, 
and I looked to see if draws were, well, I looked to see if win, lose, and draws were priced correctly. I quickly found that the um, the over-unders were priced very well in the Premier League. And then I looked to see what about draws, though. And what I found is for many of the big te- big games, so if you have a Liverpool-Man City game or you've got Spurs versus Chelsea, the draws at that time were not priced um, in a way that reflected the chance of the teams drawing. They drew more often than you would have expected given the odds that were offered on them. And it was something like, and and this we'll come back to this a bit later, it's important to all of these types of edges, they're on the order of 2 or 3% that you could hope to win on fair odds. Now, the pinnacle um, margin is probably about 2% or something like that. You can tell me better than this. So it's very close. You've got to have a 3% edge to win if you're betting on pinnacle. But if you look at over enough bookmakers, you might be able to um find you might be able to get your your edge down to about sort of one or two percent and so with that three percent edge i found that this betting draws backing draws on big matches there was also a small long shot bias in the premier league that you should back very strong teams so those two things were the basis for my strategy and i i fitted the model and had predictions for every match and i think i started in 2000 15 because while well, I was writing Soccermatics 2015-16 thing and this uh, and I started placing bets on this strategy and it kept on working and it was still working up and about I, I mean actually I have to admit I, I don't know I'm useless at the actual placing the bets but I, I, I made predictions on all of these things for about three or four years and it, it's, it kept making money this strategy it stopped making money about 2019 um, but that was long after I'd stopped betting on it. But um, yeah, so the the point is that you could find, and it didn't. It only worked in the Premier League as well. So we actually looked at this for other leagues, and there do seem to be sort of other small biases in leagues. I think we'll maybe come back to Jan and Marius, who I, I worked with um, on this. But they found they found, for example, biases in Brazil people are over-optimistic for high-scoring matches. In Germany, they're more depressed and think that everything's going to be a low-scoring match. So those kind of small biases in the leagues, you can find a little edge, maybe only 1% or 2%, but if you've got a good a good margin with the bookmakers, you can start to make a small profit off those. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get on to the, the next book or the, the most recent book where you kind of talk about that in a little bit more detail and certainly develop the work that you, you kind of started in Soccermatics. The One of the intriguing things for me is you, you mentioned there about the you kind of struggled with the act of actually placing the bet and stuff like that. So is the, <laughs> is the pure motivation here for you the, the real math side of it and that... Do, do you do it for financial gain? Are you are you betting on what your your model predicts and stuff like that? Or is it more just to see if the market can be broken? No, it is. Uh, for me, it is an intellectual challenge. It's interesting to find out if, I mean, first of all, I was just interested as a mathematician with this skill set, can I make money doing this? And so during the book, I placed the bets because um, yeah, I th- thought, felt it was honest I think you you know you should put your money where your mouth is. So I took five hundred quid, I invested it, and I I placed the bets and 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 made some money because I think it's important to to really to really do that. 
But then afterwards, I lost interest in placing the bets, to be honest. I couldn't be bothered opening up the bookmakers and doing it. So I just I just watched how it developed over time. Um, and I think there's a there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, I think that if you're going to do it seriously, if you're going to set up an automated um, trading algorithm, that takes time. And I'm not paid to do that. You know, I have a job as a maths professor. So that's what I should be spending my time doing. And then I just have all these other interests I'm, and I'm fundamentally interested in understanding the patterns in life. And I think we're, we're going to come back to this, obviously, but I think it is a career that you can do becoming a professional gambler and uh, using mathematics to make money. But it takes as much time as applying mathematics in other in other settings. So it takes as much you have to invest as much time in it as if you want to use it to understand how to make your football team play better or how birds flock or how prawns move in about in a bucket or how sociological processes work, how segregation works in society. All of those questions require a lot of time to invest with, with mathematical learning. And it's the same with the betting. I think if you're really interested in it, it's definitely a potential career if you've got that mathematical background, but it's not something that you can do without investing time in it. Well, I think it's like it's really interesting to think as well. Obviously, it's it's one thing to I mean, I'm going to keep using your your prawns in a bucket one because it's it's fascinating. <laughs> it's one thing to work out how prawns move in a bucket or whatever it might be, or the fact that there are biases that exist in a betting market. But then, second to that, and, and probably more important, is the why to that part. So, is that how much of your work mm. has been dedicated to? like the the draw thing with certain matches the the psychological things that go in there i think you said about like the optimism maybe in south america the the pessimism in in certain parts of europe that might lead to unders or whatever it might be sort of yeah. what's the split there and how far do you go into that questioning why certain things exist yeah that's absolutely the answer so um or, or that's absolutely very important so often for me it's somebody who else who wants to know the why so it wasn't quite the case in the in the betting example that it was me that wanted to know, you know, why why might there be these kind of biases in the odds? But in a lot of the other work that I do, it's a biologist who's who's got a why question. Maybe about not about the prawns in the actually, I mean, I'll, I'll try and explain why it was interesting to look at prawns in the bucket. And it actually started with locusts. So we were interested in how locusts swarm and how they move together. And we did experiments. Um, on in Oxford, we did experiments looking at how locusts move around in an arena. And you could see that they all switched direction very quickly and started to move. They always moved very quickly in the, to switch to move in the same direction. And this is very important for agriculture, uh, maybe thinking about control of locusts or also just preserving locusts in various different ways. So this is a sort of important ecological question. And it's not relevant just to locusts. It's also relevant to birds. And then for the prawns in the bucket, we thought, well, what's the simplest organism that we can do this type of experiment on? And it turned out to be prawns. And it turns out that prawns had the same type of um, flocking behavior, you could call it, as locusts had swarming behavior, as um, birds had flocking behavior and fish had schooling behavior. So that's the why in that question. We wanted to understand the overall movement of these animals, which is very important in an ecological um, setting. And then exactly as you say, what's interesting in betting is it becomes a, a question for picking out psychological biases. So 
why is it that we bet certain things? I mean, the classic one, of course, is the long shot bias. We really do seem to have a, a bias to picking very unlikely outcomes. And for me, I think the reason the reason for that is for the average punter, I think, is it's no it's no fun to you know bet one point one on Manchester City or something. It's much more fun to hope that. Yeah, hope that West Brom get a draw, they win. You know, that's that's where it's going to be fun that you you get ten times your money. That's actually a fun bet to place. And what the gambler wants to do is find the non-fun bets to place and place them. And uh, that's what betting on a draw, Manchester City versus Liverpool or Spurs versus Chelsea. That's the boring bet to make, but that's the bet that's going to make you money. Yeah, I think we'll we'll certainly find out a little bit more about that shortly when we we talk about the the betting equation element to your your new book. But just to kind of wrap us up on soccermatics, what was the obviously a great achievement to write the book? And as I said, it is a, a really really good book. So how did you feel when that was published and it was out? How was it received? Did you did you kind of achieve what you wanted to achieve with it? Yeah, I think I did. I mean, maybe maybe you know maybe what I wanted to achieve in first was a sort of more of an overall appreciation of what mathematics can do, and hopefully I achieved some of that. But where, where the where the kind of overachievement was, or what the exciting achievement was of it is, is that I did start to get a lot of contact from different football clubs, and um, who were and yeah, also from betting people, yourself included. I got a lot of interest in using these models um, for real. And so that actually resulted in what we did this year during the corona crisis. I got together with um, Javier Fernandez from Barcelona, Suds from Benfica, um, Pascal who works for the German Football Federation. All of these guys who are doing analytics for football clubs, They we got together and we did this Friends of Tracking thing where we filmed how you do football analytics and so we sort of set up a whole course on doing football analytics and now this became a course at the university and so we're now teaching people how to do this football analytics there's a lot of interest from clubs who are hiring people to do that type of football analytics and this is by no way just down to me and writing soccermatics there's lots of other people who've been involved with this but this is really taking off now every club wants to have somebody like me working for them doing that type of analysis yeah and i think it's the i mean i don't know whether it was the the lockdown stuff or whatever it might be but you also put some time into the the lectures and specifically on, on modeling mm. as well didn't you yeah i mean there's there i i i would contend that that course contains pretty much up it starts at the very basic how do you download a programming environment and start writing a little bit of code and it ends with the most advanced models that Liverpool use in recruitment um, at the end of the course. And so you go all the way from that start to the end point. And I think that's what the great advantage of being a professor at a university is, is that I don't have any kind of restriction on what I can talk about or what I can't talk about, other than I have to be careful about talking about certain clubs or what goes on inside them but I don't have any restriction on the what I can talk about the methods so we've really tried to go through everything that you need to do to be a football analyst I'm not saying that it wouldn't be it's not hard work to go from the start of the course to the end of the course it would certainly be hard work and you'd you'd have to take in other information about programming and mathematics in order to go the way but in the end we had 60 students who went all the way from the start to the end 
and graduated the course. And if you go in on, and look at the latest YouTube video, they presented, there was a group of 12 of them. They did a project on Inter where they um, basically did their analytics for them. And I think that that presentation that they did was probably higher quality than anything that Inter were doing themselves or probably at a level that, you know, of even the best clubs in the world who are doing analytics. So um, it it really got to, they really got to a very high level. Sorry, actually, I don't know who works as an analyst for Inter, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I think they would have difficulty competing with these 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 uh, twelve people who did the did this particular report. One of the one of the things I'm interested in, and I, I'm in a very fortunate position to do this podcast and and speak to people like yourself that authored some books and the you're a professor, you're you're doing all this kind of additional stuff and and out there sort of helping people. I guess it begs the question that. Where does the one there's a knowledge base, there's a skill set and stuff like that, and you, you obviously work very hard, but I mean there is a a real sort of level of dedication, motivation to kind of push you to do these things that you put out there. So what is the what is the drive behind it for you? How do you kind of push yourself to to keep writing another book, to doing another course, or, or whatever it might be? Yeah, I, th- I think it's always really difficult with this this internal motivation question because I don't really know when it happened you know I don't I I mean I am really motivated I just have new things that I want to do all the time Um, and I have to balance that of course with my family life which I also enjoy very much and take a lot of care of but where it came from I'm not quite sure you know it wasn't as I said earlier it wasn't that I was really really motivated and really into this from a very young age I think I just got into it through working with people. So I've found it really enjoyable to work together with biologists on various projects. And I just enjoyed this problem solving part of it, not thinking too much about the future or where it was going. I just tried to solve different problems. I wrote articles explaining how I'd solve these problems. Um, I got to travel a lot when I was working for the um when I was a sort of PhD student and a postdoc, I got to travel around the world, which was also very motivating, you know, and just working in these different environments and going for drinks with people afterwards was really, it was just really interesting all the time. And so I think it came from that. I just, um, yeah, I think I, I always find this motivation question really difficult because it's, it really just comes natural to me that I just want to do this. And I get up in the morning and often feel that I do want to do it. That doesn't mean there's a difficult thing there because that doesn't mean that I never find it difficult to get going. I certainly, when I'm writing books, for example, I get up in the morning and I don't always want to sit down and write. I sometimes have to force myself to write. And there, there maybe are a few methods for keeping you going. And really the method there is just to do something rather than nothing. So I write something, even if it's total rubbish, or I program something, even though I know it's not going to work, just so I do something rather than nothing. So there is, it's not like I always feel motivated that I'm, I'm like that, but I always feel motivated enough, I think, to keep going. Yeah, I just think it's really interesting to kind of think about it. I know I've asked the, the question to a couple of people on this podcast and some of them like yourself, it's just a real natural thing that never really gets any thought put to it and it just kind of occurs. Whereas some people it's 
um i can't remember who we had on it, it kind of reminded me of mark twain talks about the eating your frog in the morning like get the worst thing out of the way and everything's easy from there and these sort of different styles and approaches to life but i mean i wanted to ask a question but it's um i'm, I'm gonna get us on to the i can well i can say something i mean i think when you bring it up like that i can say something a little bit more about how i structure my day i was thinking about what you were saying do the worst thing first i do the best thing first so when I get out of bed, I get I do get out of bed every morning at 6.45. Um, I take the dogs out, um, have breakfast with my wife. Then I sit down and do the enjoyable writing that I want to do or the enjoyable programming I want to do. So I do that for um, till lunchtime. And then after lunch, wait a minute, I'm talking to you now at the latest part of the day. So this is going to really sound bad. I do the... <laughs> I do this in the afternoon. I do the the things I don't want to do. And then actually around about this time when I'm talking to you now, then I, I do some sort of fun things like this. You know, then I go out on Twitter or I do a sort of interview like this. If, if somebody's interested in interviewing me, I do a bit later in the day. And then when we did the Friends of Tracking, I would do that a bit later in the evening as well. So So that's how I structure the day. Fun things first, a hard slog in the middle of the day. And then some more fun things in the evening if it is work related, uh, but often it's it's family related instead. There you go. You you saved yourself at the end there, David. <laughs> um, right, I'm going to get us on to the. I'll say the main reason we're here today. I think we could we could do a whole podcast without talking about the book, but it is it is sort of the the reason I wanted to chat to you on the podcast. I I reached out to you again after I saw that you you'd published the new book, and it's. The 10 Equations That Rule the World and, and How You Can Use Them Too. Um, obviously, I've read it. I absolutely love it. Again, it's it's another great work from yourself. Um, I know you you specialize in mathematics, but uh, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of writers out there that could learn a lot from the introduction that you give because I don't think I've been more drawn into a book as I have with yours after the first five pages or, or whatever it was. But can you maybe just for anyone listening that that hasn't read the book, doesn't know about it, maybe just give a little bit of an intro and this this concept of ten that you talk about throughout the book and and sort of those those ideas. Yeah, I mean, what I really tried to do in that intro was was two things. I wanted to say that if you learn this mathematical way of thinking, in a way, it's it, you can see it as a self help. You can become a better person, not just a richer person that we might be interested in better in betting, but a, a better person by understanding these things. And then I sort of twist it a bit. And I, I talk about this secret organization called 10, and I call them 10 after the 10 equations. And what the members of 10 have done is that they've learned a secret code and they talk to each other in a secret code, which allows them to become rich and to become successful and to become better people. And I try and draw people in with this sort of semi-conspiracy theory. You know, is, is there really this, this uh, Society 10? And we're going to investigate the existence of this 10, what they can do and what they can't do, the problems that they have, the good things they do in the world, the bad things they do in the world. And we go on both an historical journey. I go into the past about the origins of 10. And we also go in an everyday, a, a, a sort of society journey, how 10 is used in betting, how it's used in social media companies, how it's used in finance, and also a personal journey, how that you can use 10 in your own life. 
So it's all of those, those three journeys, history, modern day usage, and the personal journey that I tried to bring out in that, in, in that introduction. It's very nice to hear that you were captivated by it. I think possibly some mathematicians might think I go a little bit too far describing maths as a conspiracy theory, but hopefully I balance that off. And, and I think, yeah, I, hopefully I, I, I get a good balance in that because I do think it is a conspiracy theory and we can go into that in a little bit more detail if you want to. But I, I also think that it's, it's not the type of conspiracy theory like QAnon or something like that. It's a conspiracy theory that we should all know about. Yeah, I think anyone listening think Illuminati, think the the Priory from the Da Vinci Code and stuff like that, isn't it? It's of the same ilk, I think. Yeah, and that's the idea. And, and I get quite fast into explaining what's happening here. And what's happening is that if you learn the code, it turns out that, for example, if you're interested in betting, we're, we're going to come back to this, I think, but th there are papers that are published. You can just download them for free and they tell you all the secrets that you need to know to become a successful gambler. But people don't tend to look at them. Intent, instead, I get lots of emails asking for like tips or uh, messages all the time asking for tips from gamblers and so on. And people don't tend to study the code. And that's where the secret of 10 lies. If you learn the code, then everything is open to you and you can find all the material you need to learn about gambling or anything else, or finance, or how IT companies work, it's all actually available to you. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's really one of the things I found most interesting is that it's not even that the answers are out there, and people obviously buy into this very sort of get rich quick mentality, but it's it's the fact that the answers are there, but also the, the information that gets you to the answer is there, and that's really sort of the most important thing. Um, now, we, we mentioned it a couple of times, and, and the first, I think it is the very first equation that you talk about in the book is the, the betting equation. Um, we will talk about that in a little bit more detail for, for obvious reasons. And I know that the 10 equations all have equal importance, but is there is there anything in there that you think anyone listening to this, if they're on the verge of sort of clicking that buy button for the book, that any sort of equation outside of betting is is really of interest to, to them or, or something that might sort of motivate someone to to read more about it oh i think there should be there should be something for everyone in there to be honest i hope there is anyway i mean uh, to take the personal examples i look at things like so so if if one of your friends has let you down and done something horrible to you should you conclude that this person is a total idiot or should you be forgiving of that person and i i take up that example. And what I use is I use the judgment equation, which I call it, which is Bayes rule. And what that allows you to do is balance different pieces of information or balance different hypotheses. So one hypothesis about this person who's, who's let you down is actually they're an idiot. They're not a very nice person. Or it might just be that they're a nice person who just happens to have let you down. And I go through the calculation and I find that under a wide range of uh, expectations about other people, it's nearly always the case that when someone lets you down is that it's just a nice person who's made a mistake. And so you should become a more forgiving person on the basis of mathematics. And a lot of the practical examples are exactly of that ilk. I look at like how many hotel re reviews you should read before you book a holiday. I look at how long you should keep looking at a Netflix series before you decide that you're going to switch off and stop watching it. And so I try and get 
Um, and and I, even, I, yeah, I even have some advice about how you should buy a new pair of headphones using what I call the market equation, which is the equation you want to go through. You've got a noise, you've got a signal, and you've got feedback. You want to balance all of those up and decide how you're going to buy a new pair of headphones. So there's lots of sort of practical advice about how you can use these equations in your everyday life. And the, just lastly, before we do dive into the betting stuff, when you when you talk about sort of the Bayesian approach to whether someone's a good or a bad friend, we do you see when you write the book, do you see their sort of people scribbling down each on either side, the positives, the negatives, or are we thinking this is more sort of a natural way that we do actually process these equations naturally and it's more the thought process behind it or or do you expect people to actually sit there and, and work things out sort of by numbers? That's a really good question. So some when I tell this story about, you know, how you work out if you should forgive someone or not, some people will say that they, they feel that they automatically work that out. And I think that's fine. What you get then in from the book is a sort of understanding of why you were right. You know, so sometimes you will have a good way of processing these things and you get an understanding of your you were right. Other people maybe are more judgmental and draw um, draw conclusions very quickly. And there I try to explain to them using the calculation, but also saying, in fact, I want to, yeah, I want to say something about this. But I think it's really important when you use Bayes' equation and this, this judgment equation that you can put subjective information into the equation. The equation itself is objective in the sense that it gives one correct answer. But you can put subjective information. You can think how many, like, you can have a subjective opinion about how many people in the world are idiots, a subjective opinion about how often people do nasty things to you. And if you do write those down, it just takes a minute, then you can put them into this calculation and you can work out how often when someone does something bad that they're actually an idiot and you shouldn't be friends with them anymore. And so there it's a very concrete calculation, but it's subjective things that you've put in. And I think that's very important because we often think of maths as just being about objective, correct answers, but it's also about reasoning subjectively. And that doesn't mean that it's got to be an exact science. It means that it's a sort of rough science where you can draw certain conclusions. Right. Well, let's let's get on to the the betting equation. Then, as, as I said, the first one in the book, it's obviously most likely going to be the most interesting one for people listening to this type of podcast. Now, a lot of people in betting will say that there's there's no silver bullet solution or a, a goose that lays the golden egg or whatever you want to call it, basically guaranteed results. However, you've you put your neck on the line a bit a little bit and suggested that the the equation can do just that. And I'm not going to ask you to to give us a full tutorial. Obviously, people should should go out and buy this book and find out more about it. I think what would be interesting though, and you mentioned the names Jan and Marius earlier, if you could maybe just talk to us a little bit about your experience with them and, and how you worked with them and, and how the how the equation was put to use um, in your kind of story. Yeah, sure. So Jan and Marius, they contacted me um, quite early. They, they, yeah, this was after Socomatics was, was written. And I think, actually, to be very, very honest, I think that they'd read the Pinnacle articles that I've I, written. You know so, I read the book and my, I did kind of think, was it, was it from there? <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I think that was how they they'd seen me on various things, but I think it was mostly the pinnacle thing that they they certainly hadn't they hadn't bought a copy of Socomatics. I had to give yeah, I mean these guys are into gambling and they've made quite a lot of money, but I still had to give them a free copy of the book. <laughs> so, 
I suppose, I suppose if you're, you know, if you make money, you're, you're onto those types of things. So they hadn't read the book, but they, they'd read the Pinnacle article and they read various things. And they asked if it was okay if I came and, if they came and visited me in Uppsala and we could sort of set up a model for the World Cup. Um, that was the idea. And, and I was kind of interested to, because what they had, and it comes back to what I said right at the start about I couldn't be bothered placing the bets. They were very good at the automating, automated betting um, systems. And so they set up, um, they could automate the whole process um, on exchange. I don't know if they use, I don't know which exchange they use, to be honest, but, but they, they could automate the whole process. And so we thought we'd set up a model for the World Cup. And I used the same approach that I'd used in Socomatics. What I, I did is I used logistic regression to try and find out, again, if there was values in uh, favorites, if there was values in draws, if there was values in, um, well, in non-favorites, uh, if there was long shot bias. And also, another thing we did there, which was quite interesting, is we compared the opening odds for the World Cup and the European Championships with the closing odds. And we found, actually, in this case, the opening odds gave more value than the closing odds the the opening odds had a they had a bigger margin so it wasn't worth backing them then but when you came down to the closing odds they seemed to be getting the fair bet there was was becoming less and less value and if you created a fair bet based on the opening odds and you made a small adjustment um, using our logistic regression model you could earn some money actually i've explained it i've explained it quite poorly here i explained it more clearly in the book <laughs> uh, but um you could you could correct you could use the opening odds as an input for a model which would then adjust the odds so that you would um you could uh, find a value bet um there and, th and that's what we did and uh, again there's no way um of saying that this was 100 percent reliable because we only bet on the World Cup for a short uh, period of time, and we did win some money on the World Cup. But what they went on and did is that they started using methods similar to this and some other methods that they developed themselves in order to try and find value um, over in different leagues. And you, I mean, you mentioned the lo the logistic regression stuff. It's it's central to to what you do with the equation. But can you? For those that aren't aware, I mean, it's something that it on the face of it, it seems quite complex when you first look at it. But when you begin to sort of dig into things and, and work with it a little bit closer, it does become a lot clearer. Can you maybe give us a, a bit of a primer from, is it, I think it's David Cox, isn't it, that you draw upon and is really kind of heralded as the, the kind of first starter of, of that kind of thinking. So maybe talk about his work and, and kind of how it's actually implemented um let, let me let me explain the logistic regression in a betting context um first i i, I want to come i'm definitely going to if i forget come, tell me to come back to david cox because interviewing him was fascinating but let, let me just explain the the basic rule so if you for a fair bet then the probability of winning is equal to one over one plus x where X is the UK odds. So it would actually be a fair bet is the probability of winning is equal to one over the European odds. But I think it's easier to think about actually if you do probability of winning is equal to one over one plus X, where X 
is the UK odds. And that's what is implied by, that's the probability of winning implied by the odds. Now, what logistic regression does is say, well, okay, let's change this. Let's look at the probability of winning is equal to one over one plus alpha times x to the power of beta, where alpha and beta are two parameters. And if alpha and beta are one, if they're both one, then we just go to one over one plus x again. But if we alpha and beta are something else, then we can actually have a different model. And what we do in the process of logistic regression is we find the optimal values for alpha and beta based on historical data. And we found that for the World Cup, the optimal values for alpha was like, I don't know, it was 1.1 and the optimal value for beta was 1.16. And that gave us a model that had a slight edge over the bookmaker's model. And the, the, what, it, what it actually implied in real things, you know, you said earlier, you should always go back to a psychological explanation or something. What, what this said is there was, yes, there was a long shot bias, very, very strong favorites, had a long shot bias. So if you were back in Brazil versus, sorry, I have to say some sort of weak team. I'll take North Korea. If Brazil were playing North Korea, you should back Brazil. But there was also a kind of reverse bias once you got to the favorite was when it was an even favorite. So I think the one we took in the book was England against Uruguay. England against Uruguay, England were the favorites, but they were very narrow favorites. And so actually you should back Uruguay. And all of those two examples I've said, they were all just encoded in this one equation, one over one plus alpha x, alpha times x to the power of beta, where alpha and beta were constants that were greater than one. And that would tell you which base, which, which thing you should, um, which bet you should make. And now I can come to David Cox. He was the person who found the correct way of finding alpha and beta in these different situations. He showed, he developed what's called a maximum likelihood estimate, which is a way of estimating alpha or beta for any problem. And that's what's implemented inside logistic regression models that you can, you can download and use, use online today. And it was fascinating to talk to him because he, he developed this problem. He was interested in, he worked in for the engineer, he was working for um, airplane engineering, uh, in the fabric industry. Apparently, the fabric industry in the 1950s is what Google is today. This is just crazy. But inside these fabric, because they had so much money, they were funding all of this sort of basic research, that a lot of which is done in Google these days. And they were funding, they funded the research into logistic regression, which now has later been used. It's used in expected goals models. It's used in these betting models. It's used everywhere. And David Cox was the first guy to come up with these. He, he didn't, um, he himself, he was kind of, he wasn't a gambler, he told me. Um, so he, he, but he was fascinated to find out that the, the, the logistic regression was now so important to gambling and was making so much money there. Yeah, I think uh, you get a sense of the kind of man he is. Is it the you say something about you working every day or something? He says, "No, I don't work Saturdays and Sundays," or, or I should. Say that. Yeah, it was a precision in his in his in his uh, 
everything. Yeah, so I, I forget ex also what the phrase was, but it was a it was a careful precision in everything that he said to me. And so yes, he, yes, I come in every day, but um, that wouldn't. Yes, I said, do you come in every day? So well, not on Saturdays and Sundays. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I don't know. It's just very very precise language, and I think I think that encompasses a lot of what um, a mathematician is about. Well, yeah, I think. Look, the the complexities of what we're we're talking about is, I mean, whether or not it's it's conducive to a podcast, we'll we'll have to let the the listeners decide. But what I would say is that when you talk about, a lot of people will be aware of favorite long shot bias and and the the favorite kind of being underestimated by the market and stuff. But one of the things I found very useful in the book is there's some some visual cues of kind of graphs with data points plotted on them, and that kind of arc is basically what sits above and below. And, and that kind of visual representation, I think, is is really helpful. Yeah, and I would say, and that's really important because when you hear about a favourite long shot bias, you might say, well, okay, England are playing Uruguay, England are the favourites, let's put some money on England. And that's not correct because the favourite long shot bias for the World Cup, it turned out, was one way for very strong favourites, but it was another way for weaker favourites. And so it really depended on that. And actually, you wouldn't have won money if you just said, "I'm all." If I booked, every, if I backed every favorite in the World Cup, that wouldn't have made made money overall. And there's, I know you mentioned sort of um, Brazil and Germany earlier on in the the show, and I think in the book there's is it Spain and England? I think you talk about as well that kind of fall into these sort of profiles. Now, one of the questions I had about that is that is it? Do you think it's regionalized by the market so do you think that we see england overestimated potentially because there's you're you're looking at uk focused bookmakers or anything like that or is it just our sort of a global perception of these teams yeah i should be clear that that was that was mainly jan and Ma well it was in fact jan and marius's work where they looked at different leagues um so you have to get those guys on at some point to talk about that in more detail but um I think I spent a lot of time talking with Marius in particular about this. Um, I think it is national differences. So the bookmakers, of course, they want to give attractive bets to the people who live in the country. So they do adjust their odds for those countries to reflect what people want to bet on. You'd have to ask Jan and Marius, but I, I did. I did talk a lot to Marius about exactly this type of thing because he always wanted to find this psychological explanation and i think what happens is that there's certain there are these preferences in particular nations for more optimistic betting or for more pessimistic betting and their bookmakers then adjust their odds in order to attract the those kind of uh, those kind of psychological profiles of the different countries and that's where you can make these small margins. I mean, it's important to, again, I want to emphasize this was Jan and Marius's work. It's important to emphasize that the margins they found were on an order of 0.8% on Asian markets. So the, um, the margins they were working with was 1% and they had a 1.8% edge. And so they could make a 0.8% profit um, per bet. So it's a very small trend but it did seem to be a, a realistic trend in these national differences and now the, the 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 way that the relationship worked and as you've you've kind of clearly shown what what Jan and Marius were responsible for and, and what you brought to the table and 
you kind of talked a little bit before about the fact that you, you don't enjoy the the actual placing of the bets or, or what goes into that now did you learn anything more about it when you worked with them or was it very much a sort of split case where you did your work and then they went away and did the betting side of things or did you learn more than perhaps you you had learned during the, the experience with Socomatics, for example Oh, yeah, I learned a lot. I mean, um, just the technical side of things. I actually started, I I did get, I did, I learned to program a bot that can automatically trade, for example. So that was quite fun to learn that, that bit of it. And I learned a lot of that from, from Jan, who was more the programmer. And also what's really important is that those guys were 100% dedicated to this project. So they did earn a lot of money at the end of it. They tell me, and I, I have no reason not to believe them, is that they made 800,000 euros in 2019. But they worked, those two plus two or three other people worked incredibly hard during 2019 to develop everything, to test everything, and to make sure they got everything right. So I learned a lot about, or, or just hearing, catching up with them now and again to hear about the process that they'd been through, all the different people that they'd spoken to, I learned a lot from that. And I was, I think, I think the main thing I learned was exactly, I think I said it earlier about how it's a full-time job. It's not something you sort of mess around with. Well, you can mess around with it on the side, but if you actually want to make serious money, you have to make a good investment and it's a full-time job uh, for you to work on. And whether, I mean, for me as a professor in maths, where I have a nice steady salary coming in and I have a few other things I do with football clubs and so on, it kind of wasn't that attractive uh, type of life with that type of instability. If I told my wife we were going to sell the house and place it all on the Asian markets, um, even stating the rate of return, I'm not sure that she would be very happy with that that idea. And do you know when you, you've spoken to Jana Marius and you said a minute ago it's kind of can be specific to league or competition and the work you did with the world cup now i'm assuming that this can be applied to different sports or different markets providing that the biases that that you identified are there to be found right absolutely so the um when i find out so so i did this this myself with the logistic regression i didn't really look too much into the literature about it um, but when I started looking into the literature, I found these papers by William Bedner, who worked on Hong Kong betting. And according to one article, his techniques made up to a billion dollars. Um, and when you look at, and this comes back to this sort of secret idea of 10, he published this article in 1906, I think, or late 90s. He published an article showing his method showing that it won money over five years, that article has been cited a hundred times. And what I mean by cited, if you're not familiar with the academic literature, that's kind of our metric for how important a paper is. A paper which is cited by lots of other papers is very important. I think I mentioned in the book that I wrote a paper about how ants choose a new nest. That's been cited 350 times. Probably our prawns in the bucket experiment has been cited a hundred times. And so his paper just sort of was lying there open with all the methods in it. And then I open it up and then, you know, equation two is precisely the logistic regression equation that would became equation one in my book. It's, it's just amazing. And it's all there. And it's important to point out that he took in other factors. He didn't just look for the bias. He started off, 
In fact, in fact, I think I think this is what's important to emphasize about what my method is and what his method was that is putting the odds into the model. So when you're working out the probability of, of winning, you always put the you always start by putting the odds into the model. Then you add in other factors like the jockey, like the horse, the weather, all of those types of factors. You add in those factors and you see, do they outperform the original odds that you've put back into the model? And that's what he developed, a, a method for not only finding the probability of winning by putting the odds back into the model, but also putting in these other factors um, that he got. But when, but when he wrote about this, he his big aha moment, because at that time there wasn't Pinnacle, you couldn't just download all the odds. Uh, you had to find out historical odds. And he found in the jockey club, um, in the sort of back room of the jockey club, there was a massive stack of books with old odds in it. And he hired two secretaries to type in all of these odds so that he could fit his model. And that's where he had his edge. He found the, those books, typed in the odds, and then from historical odds, he could find those biases that uh, allowed him to make money on horse horse racing. Yeah, I like that that big bit in the book. It's almost like this treasure map is out there. And we kind of talked about it before. Everyone's after this sort of get rich quick scheme and the, the kind of trying to find the, the secret source. And there is actually, isn't it, does he quote or cite something is it like chapman or something that's that's also very rarely read as well that's exactly yeah i think it's ruth ruth chapman and someone else uh, they wrote they have a horse writing thing from um yeah a horse betting thing from like the 1970s and there's a few things back in the 1960s and so on again these articles like are cited 110 times or something they're really not heavily cited in the scientific literature and I don't think they're heavily downloaded either. Um, you definitely need to write a pinnacle article looking at some of these historical classics. I think that, that's a that's a job for you next. And I mean, whether it's Bill Benter or, or whoever it might be, and and yourself with your model, that like things aren't going to work straight away. There is obviously an element of failure that's, that's going to come along with this. Now, with the work that you did with with Ian and Marius was it did you kind of how extensive was sort of back testing involved or, or what level of research went into actually kind of making sure you had something that was worth investing in yeah again i want to give them the credit for this so when when um, we did the world cup thing we had a few years and you wouldn't say that it wasn't we didn't have enough data to really show statistical significance um, we had matches from four previous tournaments and we could see a sort of edge, but it was kind of, we thought there was a sort of 75% chance we'd make money and 25% chance we'd lose, something like that. And that's reasonable enough. When they went on and developed it, they were using hundreds of thousands of historical uh, bets. And it's a bit like the Bentner story. Um, it's a sort of modern day equivalent because you need to have 100,000 bets in order to have faith that your model is going to work. And um, that's what they did. They uh, collected they collated their own set of odds data, which they could develop their model on. And that required a lot of testing and checking that it made money over a long, a long period of time. But the methods they use there, again, they're the sorts of things you can re read on your on the Pinnacle blog. They're the sorts of things that are um, openly written about that um, Joseph, who does uh, footballdata.co.uk, has written about previously. 
he's interesting actually I, I just thought of him because he's always into this like you know there's no way of making money betting but then when you actually look at his sort of wisdom of the crowds um uh, model it does have a small edge on the markets over a long long period of time so there's a kind of there's a very interesting thing there that most of the people who say you have to be very cautious about the models they're, they're right you do have to be extremely cautious but if you're extremely cautious and you work hard enough that's when you can find the find the edges yeah and i think i mean not to not to speak for joseph and i think this is something you also alluded to in the books there's there's models that will enjoy success at, at soft bookmakers quote-unquote bookmakers that ultimately as as you've said and i think as you've as you found will, will get you banned or restricted or whatever it might be but so i think i've seen a couple of twitter conversations between him and yourself and it, it does seem interesting what's going on there um one of the the things that you mentioned earlier and, and you do mention in the book is this idea of um opening odds and, and closing odds and I just like to kind of question whether like we're getting into territory of sort of efficient market hypothesis and, and stuff like that. Now, it may well not apply specifically to something like the World Cup, but do you believe generally that, that the closing odds are more accurate sort of across the board and, and it's a kind of finding a, a competition or an event where that might not be the case? Or is that something that you believe in sort of generally speaking that, that the opening odds are better than closing odds? So the op- yeah the opening odds um, over the data sets that we looked at and I looked at lots of leagues the opening odds were typically better than sorry the closing odds were better than the opening odds I'll be very clear on that the World Cup was the exception and that that's what you're looking for right so when you're doing this type of data analysis you're looking for those types of exceptions that are statistically robust and then you're thinking wait a minute is there an explanation for this and I think the explanation is quite reasonable in the World Cup. The World Cup, there's loads of people who want to have a bet. There's loads of people placing money, higgledy-piggledy, on whatever. They have no idea what they're doing. And the bookmakers have to compensate for that. And they have to still be offering them odds that they're going to find attractive and so on. And so they might know, I'm sure that the odds setters, at the, before the World Cup's played, even six months in advance, they have a good idea about the strength and the form of the teams. Then come in all the punters and throw in lots of money. And those odds are very hard to balance. And you you can't just keep your odds at what you actually think the results are going to do. Um, you'll know a lot more about this than, than Pinnacle. What you have to do is account for the bets that are coming in. And so the odds start to drift away from the true reality. But that's very specific to the World Cup. That's not going to be the case when you're looking at like you know third tier german football because there you have a sort of specialized market you actually have some pretty wise punters down there who know a lot about german tier three football who go to the matches they know the players they know who's injured and so there you're not going to have this sort of massive influx of just random money like you do in the world cup and that that i think is and going back to the the draws example in the premier league it isn't the case that draws were poorly valued in other leagues. It just seemed to be a thing in the Premier League, um, which we could establish over three or four seasons and then continued for another three or four seasons. It's finding those special things using those is, is always a special thing. And you should look for both the statistical pattern and you should look for the psychological um, explanation for this and, and see if both of those things add up. Well, and it also... 
throws a, a bit of a spanner in the works for a lot of people when we talk about sort of closing lines and to, to go back to Joseph I know talks a lot about sort of p-value t-score and, and stuff like this so when it comes to your model now I'm assuming if the, the closing lines aren't efficient then are you when you're measuring success are you I think you quote sort of figures that you made from the the model in terms of like actual money made profit and loss is that is that your sort of measuring stick for success of the model yeah that, that that's a really good question uh, it some so sometimes it's interesting to write you know so the the socomatics model um the one i set up there now i've forgotten the percentage but i, th- I think it sort of ended up making now I feel I might exaggerate it. Check the article; it's on Medium before you to the true value. But I think it sort of made ten or twenty times the ten or twenty times the money based on an increasing bet that you put in. But you should be careful there. As a general rule, if you're doing this seriously on a league which has lots of matches, you need one thousand two hundred matches to know that you're getting somewhere that's what i i set out in the book using the, what's called the confidence equation so this is more chapter three so you do need to have a lot of data in order to be truly confident that you've got the edge and that's based on the fact that you can only expect your edge to be about two or three percent right and so because of that you uh, when you put all of this into the calculation you find that you need at least a thousand bets in order to know that you've got that kind of level of edge. Right, well, there's just a couple of things that I do just want to cover off that I'm sure our listeners will be interested in. Now, the one of the things I'd, I'd like to talk about is it kind of made me feel a little bit better when, when you talk about in the book that you, you never get the maths on, on first reading or you have to go back to, to digest the equation. I think a lot of people can relate to that. So... I guess that the question for that would then be, what's the secret to to finding the motivation to go back to? It? I mean, people often we've we've talked for an hour now about the fact that there is information out there that can get you success in betting. Yet we'll find that people still do skip over the most important information because it, it feels like it might be too complex, or it, it feels like it might be too much for someone. So how do, how do you change that mentality? Yeah, I think I think you definitely have to start at the right level. So if you think about my explanation now of logistic regression, I started with this P equals one over one plus X. Now, write down that equation and work out a little bit about how it works. So I would say a really good starting point in gambling is to go through the fair odds calculator, fair probability. So you 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 take in the um, take in the bookmakers odds, calculate what their margin is and then calculate the probability of the different teams winning. So you reverse engineer the odds. That's a very good starting point for the types of mathematics involved. Then you can think about, so so I would actually recommend studying a good course in probability, a first year course in probability at a university level. And then you'll start to get the material that you need in order to really understand what's written in some of the more complicated betting articles because i think it's one thing for me to talk about logistic regression and say it's it's the it's the key but i think the starting point is to is to look at it from that level so start with just and there's so many fun i think for a gambler there must be so many fun problems 
just using basic probability. You know, is is this a good bet or is that a good bet? Um, there's things like the we always have this Monty Hall problem. So uh, if if you have a, a, a two do three doors and behind two of the doors there's donkeys and behind one of the doors there's a car. The host says to you, okay, um, choose a door. You choose a door, one of the three. Then what the host does is that he opens up and shows that there is no, he shows one of the doors where there's a donkey and no car. And then he says to you, do you want to change the door you've chosen or do you want to stick to the door that you've, you've already got? And it turns out if you work this out and you use the judgment equation, Bayes' rule to work this out, or in fact, you just draw a tree diagram. That's one way of, of solving it you find out that you should always swap doors. Whatever you pick the first time, you should always swap doors. And that's incredibly counterintuitive. It's a fun mathematical problem to start working with and playing around. And that might not lead immediately to you understanding betting. But when you, the more you understand of those types of probabilities and you build up to understanding normal distribution, and the Poisson distribution, then you can actually start to understand what's happening in the betting articles. And when you see how people are applying models, you can understand that. So I think you have to take a little bit of a distanced view. If you think back to my own story, it's not like that I came straight into working with betting. I got interested in how mathematics works and how you can use equations in different situations. It's getting that first, then it becomes quite easy to read the, read the more advanced stuff. And my, my final question then would be, what's, what's next for you, David? Is there, we had stuff we we had a, a book in between outnumbered i think it was is it are you going to write another book are you going to get more involved in betting what's what's the plan um i'm afraid from the betting side i'm afraid that that's not high on the agenda just now um but there's and i'm one of the main things that i'm doing right now is, is still working in football um looking at models for scouting and for helping players develop i do a lot of that stuff working together with hammerby football club here in sweden and research things together i have a research project to, i've had had a research project with barcelona previously and also i'm working together with someone in england just now so that's that stuff i'm the football stuff i'm still continuing and i am writing another book and i'm a bit worried because i can't quite can't quite formulate the idea you know it's a bit like 10 was a mystery to me for a long time you, you said you really enjoyed the introduction and that's nice but that sort of came near the end of the book, you know, in the sort of then it was all clear to me all of a sudden. So just now I am writing another book, but it's still a sort of mystery what this book is about. So uh, you'll have to wait and see. What a cliffhanger to to end on. Um, David, I've got to say, it's, it's been great chatting to you today. Your, your books have, I mean, they've certainly taught me a lot. I'm sure they've, they've taught a lot of people out there a lot as well. And um, I'd love to be able to talk to you a little bit more and ask you more questions, but I know you're you're clearly a very busy man. I just wanted to thank you very much for coming on the show and, and taking some time out to talk to me today. Well, thank you. It's been really fascinating to to talk to you about betting as well. Thanks very much. Great stuff. Um, and for those listening, if, if you want to learn more about David or his work, you can follow him on Twitter via the handle at Soccermatics and his books are available on Amazon and, and many other retailers. And as I've said throughout the show, I really do advise that you, you go and give them a read. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Do feel free to give us feedback or leave us a review. Remember to subscribe on your preferred platform to know as soon as our latest episodes go live. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the latest episode of the Serious About Betting podcast. 
Remember to subscribe to the Pinnacle Podcast on your preferred platform to keep up to date with all of our series. You can also review the podcast, give us feedback and suggest future guests that you want to be interviewed.